Well, as a dental student, it's always good to just, you know, get more education so that when we come out, we're more prepared for the real world. Not that we don't learn enough in dental school, but you can never have too much knowledge, right? Interacting with other dentists, learning from them, you know, having a support system that you can communicate and rely on, that's definitely something that you can't get just on the online medium. When you come to these courses, these people have been working for like several years, 30 years, 40 years of their experiences, and they share not just theirs, but um, everything from literatures. I'm going to learn how to not use my dental brain and... Um, be able to just speak to a patient and explain things in a more layman's terms. I think that we don't know what we don't know and the more you come to these events the more that you can figure out what you need to research more. I mean I'll come to this event I've been taking some notes but now I'll use that to find more articles, find more research, that kind of thing. Dr. Paul Goodman is great. He's like multi-specialty, multitasking kind of dentist mentor. I think Paul puts out really great content. I think he is a person who genuinely cares about the future of dentists coming out of school. He genuinely cares about us getting the information we need to succeed. And you know, he puts out fantastic courses for young associates and for even dentists who are just uh, in however many years of practice to learn, grow their practice, and grow their skill sets. It's been an amazing event. I can't believe he can put this all together. It looks like everyone here, the amount of work put into it is amazing. Even if I, I won't be able to be here in person, I'll definitely buy the live stream, So, which is I would highly recommend. Uh, two days of full, like, power-packed learning. Keep doing the same events. We really like it. And the way he connects everyone through the Facebook or, you know, whatever the social media he uses, it's great. So keep doing it. Welcome to the Dental Amigos podcast with Dr. Paul Goodman and attorney Rob Montgomery, taking you behind the scenes of the dental business world, all the things you didn't learn in dental school but wish you had. Rob is not a dentist and Paul is not a lawyer, but since Rob is a lawyer, we need to tell you that this podcast is for informational purposes only and shouldn't be considered legal advice. Listening to this podcast does not and will not create an attorney-client relationship. As is always the case, you should formally consult with legal counsel before proceeding with any legal matter. Learn more about The Dental Amigos at www.thedentalamigos.com. And now, here are The Dental Amigos. Hello, everyone. I'm Rob Montgomery, and I'm joined, as always, by the head nacho himself, Dr. Paul Goodman. Hey, Rob. Great to be here. Good to see you, Paul. And uh, welcome, everyone, to another episode of The Dental Amigos. Today, we're joined by our good amigo, Justin Weaver. For those of you out there who haven't heard of Justin, he is the longest tenured attorney in our firm, next to me, who has represented dentists in literally hundreds and hundreds of dental practice sales and acquisitions. Uh, Justin's a great lawyer and recently uh, has taken the lead in representing uh, a number of clients who are selling to uh, DSOs. And today, uh, he's here today to share some of his uh, experiences and observations from those deals. And you know, we've titled this show, uh, War Stories from the DSO Front with uh, Justin Weaver, Esquire. So, uh, and now, without further ado, here's Justin Weaver. Welcome, amigo, and thanks for being on the show. Thanks, Rob. Excited to be here. Yeah, it's good to have uh, have you on the other side of the wall. So while our new studio is being built out, Paul, which give you an update on that. And oh, nice. The new Can't office wait. space. It's going to be great. But in the meantime, we, we kind of share the end of the uh, 
of the uh, of the suite with with Justin, who's usually on the other side of the wall. And today he's he's joining us, so it's good to have you, man. Yeah, it's good to be here. I was going to say I'm an avid listener, and it's not only because I'm on the other side of the wall and I get to hear your podcast before anybody else. Yeah. <laughs> I'm pretty loud. I know that. I know, I know Justin. I, I, that's a, well, uh, we start with hard hitting questions, and I. Let's start with this. Uh, if we were going to have nachos here in our wonderful city of Philadelphia, where would you like to go if I was to join you? And uh, what, what kind of topping would we get? Well, if I was going with you, I think I'd have to at least consider Elvez. Oh, nice. I, I've yeah. heard you talk uh, with so much affinity about that in the past. But uh, I think my favorite is probably a spot that's very close to our office, Mission. Oh, that's they, a good place, too. They have some, some good nachos. I really like their, their tacos, uh, but their nachos are great as well. As far as my favorite topping, you know, I... I really go for the loaded nachos, but I think if I had to pick one, maybe jalapenos. I, I like some spiced oh, nice. nachos. Yeah, spicy guy. I like that. Well, cool. uh, we'll, we'll go to mission. mission. Maybe yeah, after maybe good. after the podcast, we can go now. So. Good yeah, ceviche. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, the ceviche is really good there. Uh, yeah, it's a good call. And they have the shuffleboard also. Yeah, yeah. games, adult yeah, games, drinking, adult bonus. games, and nachos. They did it. Of course. Yeah. Good. So. Um, as we said, Justin, you know you've uh, you've been working on a number of uh, of large DSO deals for for some of our clients, and obviously we're seeing some trends in in what uh, what's going on in that in that space. And there's a lot of similarities, I guess, that we see too with the way those deals are structured, and and really some of the other kind of behind the scenes things with you know what it's like to deal with the law firms and the uh, the terms that some of these DSOs like to like to work with and, and use. Um, but you know, so before we kind of get into, I wouldn't say bashing it, but yeah. you know, some of the, the more Digging critical into it. Yeah, analysis of it, you know, there, there are, uh, obviously, uh, some good things about, about doing the DSO deals, you know, and obviously there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of money, uh, involved with them. But so, uh, why don't you tell, uh, our listeners a little bit about you know, what the, the advantages are and, and kind of what you can expect from, from a DSO deal from a positive side. Sure. And there definitely are uh, some positives out there. I mean, I think the the most obvious one is one that you touched on, and that is just the, the, the amount of money, the total amount of money that a DSO is able to offer. I mean, these DSOs generally are not relying upon third-party financing uh, in the form of a traditional lender, at least. Uh, they have private ec- equity backing, and so they're able to offer more than a a private dentist might be able to offer in exchange for the practice. Now, of course, and I assume we're going to get into this in a little bit, there, there's a lot of uh, trade-offs that you have to be willing to make in order to get that higher purchase price, but that's that's the, the main thing that our clients are looking for when they decide to go with a DSO. And uh, I'm excited to be here. Uh, I'll wear my uh, broker hat. It's a fedora. And uh, sometimes my dentist hat, it's a top hat. But I can, you know. Is it the fedora with the trench coat? Is it that, yeah, yeah. That, like, that, that cartoon I put up on a presentation of the guys to look yeah, out yeah. for? Yeah, it's like an Inspector Gadget outfit. Here's my one. Um, so, uh, but I think, you know, you guys being here as two attorneys is like, listen, sometimes two dentists talk like mesial, distal, and terms you're not sure of. So just so our listeners can, because um, I've been you know, love working on deals with you and just come visiting your office on announced Justin, which I tend to do. Um, but, uh, you're the only client that comes. Yeah, man. I know. I'm my favorite client. It. It's like an only, only child. Are you my favorite child? You have to be. Um, but, uh, <laughs> um, uh, I'm the only in, in-person client. Uh, but what I would like the listeners to understand, because now I'll put on the dentist hat, is let, let's just say I have, you know, Paul Goodman's House of Nachos and Dentistry. It collects a million dollars a year and has five operatories. Um, I'm going to, you know, look to list this practice uh, for $700,000 uh, to sell. And I know as a broker, I do this. But, you know, on your end, when you have clients uh, and they're deciding between a DSO and a traditional uh, buyer, what are some of the things they're thinking about or, or talking to you about? 
Yeah, there's, I mean, there, there's a number of issues. I think the, the first one that generally comes up, again, aside from just the, the difference in the purchase price that they're able to offer is oftentimes you're, you're not taking home 100% of the purchase price at closing in a deal with a DSO. And again, when we talk about DSOs, we're talking about basically any corporate practice, any, any non-dentists yeah. uh, that are buying dental practices. Uh, and so what they're able to offer and what a lot of our clients find quite enticing is that they're able to offer them an equity stake in their, their enterprise at large. And so their 15% stake that they may retain in their practice, and at the same time, they would sell the their remaining 85%. And that's just an example, obviously. But that, that 15% stake that they retain, the, the DSOs are, are telling them that their goal is to go out and acquire very rapidly uh, a number of practices and group them together and sell them together to, to the next DSO. Uh, and so by doing that, they're able to increase the, the multiple that they're getting paid on their EBITDA. Uh, EBITDA is a, yeah. is a big word whenever you're, you're co- or a big acronym, I should say, when you're co- talking about uh, sales of, of practices to, to corporate buyers. Uh, and so clients are enticed by this ability to, to not only sell their practice, but to take that remaining percentage that they're going to continue to own and potentially double what that's worth or, or, or sell it for a higher multiple than they could get if they just sold the entire practice. At once. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. And I think, you know, just to share when I hear that, you know, that's what happens is when I'm a broker or even think of as a dentist, it can be too good a deal to turn down because you also are required to stay on and work for two to three years. And if a dentist is approaching, you know, three to four years out from retiring, they also can work and earn in, let's say, this practice that we're talking about, Paul Goodman's House of Nachos and uh, Dentistry, see if that's available, because now I would like to open one like called that. And, uh, <laughs> you know, you get your $700,000, and then you maybe earn another $250,000 a year for three years, and your total earnings in this deal are much higher, whereas um, typically, if you're a solo dentist and you sell your practice, you're not going to be able to stay as long because the person who has taken the loan out needs to work and see the patients. Right. Yeah. And I think that's probably the third you know, benefit that we talk about after, after the first two we already mentioned. That is the yeah. ability if you're if you're not to the point where you're ready to sell and kind of wrap up your career and, and move to Florida or Arizona or wherever it may be. Uh, if you're not there already, uh, enjoy some sunshine. Uh, then, you know, you have the ability to continue to work. And these almost universally, it's not always the case, but but almost universally, these DSOs are going to depend on the, the seller to stick around and continue to pro- provide treatment. Uh, for a, a period of time, like you said, three to, to five years is, is usually what we're seeing, three years really being the minimum. Uh, and, and along with that, they're going to be willing to, to pay them a, a salary uh, or compensation based on collections, but there also are going to be some contingencies in that agreement. If, if they don't live up to that continued employment obligation, there's going to be significant penalties. Gotcha. Uh, and in some cases, there, there's going to be money that's held back from the purchase price in order to, to ensure that that seller continues to work for that period of time. And so unlike selling to a private practitioner where you may have some commitment, you know, maybe a six month to a year commitment to continue to work, uh, to a DSO, you're, you're going to get a commitment from them and they're going to expect a commitment in return that you're going to continue to work for a lengthy period of time. I think, I think a there's point. a misconception. A lot of times, people think like I'm going to sell to to, to corporate, and 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 they're going to get rid of me. And and it's the exact opposite. I mean, I don't think, you know, the the big DSOs and even the small DSOs. It's not like there's this stable of of, of doctors and dentists that are like ready to go. Like we've acquired that practice. Send in the team. Right, yes, you know, like exactly. They they have the same challenges and troubles finding dentists to to work in their practices. You do, Paul. You know, it's. 
totally. not easy, you know, and so they're not looking to, to get rid of people. And I think so it's really when we're talking about, you know, that opportunity to stay on, it can be a really good thing if it's a a one doc practice or what we see or like a really big one doc yeah. practice where uh, if they were looking to sell, they would not could not possibly expect to continue to uh, to stay on for three years after the closing, you know, or. And then the other, I guess, the other sort of variety of that is the the, the practice that is uh, as a group practice. So you have a number of practices where, uh, if you sold them off individually, they would not be worth as much as selling them together. Because as you said, Justin, you know, EBITDA Paul is what yeah. we're looking at here, and that's really a measure of, of profitability. Because unlike the the dental world, where everybody yeah. wants to talk <laughs> about percentage of gross, right? Yes, the private equity world, where the people's business is money, <laughs> they uh, they're focused on profit and cash right. flow, right? Which is what everybody should really be paying more attention to. Not potential. To. You can't sell a practice on potential. <laughs> yeah, they, they usually won't go for potential. <laughs> yeah. yeah, they're a little sharper than that. But you know, so the uh, and with that, as Justin said, you know, you've got the the more the profit, the higher the profit, the greater the EBITDA. The multiple goes up too, so you get this like snowballing effect that it, there are two variables, and the bigger it gets, the more juiced up they get. And so, the ability to participate in the sale of your practice, if you retain some interest, is you could see, you know, arguably the same amount on your fifteen percent interest as you got for your eighty-five percent interest, or at least that's what the DSO guys yeah. will tell you when they're pitching right. that deal, right, Justin? Yep. Absolutely. And as we continue to focus on the positive, and since you know I'm the only. Uh, uh, licensed dentist in this in this room here i don't want to brag or anything but i am but uh, um you know as someone who owns multiple practices with my brother and and you know runs places uh from the focusing on the positive there is help the dso is offering sometimes you know i i have two small humans live in my house and sometimes when people try to help you with them you're like i'd prefer if you stopped helping me but other times you're like sure you know if you take one of our daughters and just play with her I can manage this meltdown over here so there is some for the first time in these dentist careers I think it's important to appreciate you know they might have been they've been a dentist 25 30 years running these places on their own and the DSOs will provide some uh, help to them on running it I know you guys know and you can share with the listeners that it's a double-edged sword but that's just I want from a dentist perspective listening to understand that there is some business help when they buy the practice yeah, absolutely. And I and Rob and I were talking about this earlier today. I've heard, heard Rob say this in presentations before, and that is the simple statement that, that not all DSOs are, are created equally. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, like you said, there certainly are several DSOs out there that come in and are able to provide this this business guidance to help, you know, uh, increase the revenue of the practice. Uh, there are also some DSOs out there that we've seen that come in and and will put in all types of regu- uh, all types of rules and, and regulations for the practice that will actually end up causing the practice to fail. Uh, and so, when you're talking about the equity that you're going to retain in this practice moving forward, one of the things that we drill into our clients whenever they're considering a deal of this type is that they have to be aware that even though that that DSO has the same goal as them to make sure that this is a profitable business and that it grows and that they can sell it. If they come in and do things and they're going to have total control over the practice moving forward, they can come in and put in certain uh, mechanisms or, or just you know, not invest in the, the practice the right way or, or make any decision that's, that's a negative decision for the practice, which could actually cause the practice to fail. And so while you retain that equity and the sales pitch is that you're going to end up selling it for much more than you would if you sold it on your own, there, there's always a possibility, especially with less established DSOs, that you could end up losing some money at the end of the day. 
if not losing everything entirely. And, and we've seen that in a couple of deals that have come come across our desk. Thankfully, usually we weren't involved in the in the deal itself, uh, but people coming to us looking for help. And there, there's not a lot you can do once you get to that point. And the, the equity has been diminished in the practice. I mean, it's a great point. You know, I, I want to uh, quote one of my uh, favorite movies, Forgetting Sarah Marshall, where Paul Rudd is teaching Jason Siegel to surf. And he keeps saying, do less, do less. It's just a very funny scene in the movie. And I use this in regular transitions, you know, the savvy DSOs or the savvy new owners of a practice would not, I always say to my clients or dentists, like, unless it's unsafe or immoral, you know, don't change anything for six months. And I, 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 it's almost like they fiddle with it for a reason that they don't even know because they're buying what this dentist has been doing. And then if they change too much, you know, it's just, just risk, uh, you know, disrupting the whole thing. Yeah, I think you have to be careful, too, that, you know, what you're saying is you don't get that equity piece that, that you've retained. It's not worth anything until it's sold, right? So that's, you know, that, that's a big if. Uh, but then, with, as you said at the outset, Justin, if we have a situation where there's a provision where there's some sort of holdback uh, at the time of closing, a holdback being all the money's not paid, so something's being held in escrow uh, to make sure that there are no problems to practice, or it's not uncommon to see an escrow for, uh, that would require the practice to meet a certain revenue uh, milestone after, after the sale. So you know, DSOs want to buy this practice. They want to know that the, uh, the revenue and, and the profitability is going to be constant because that's what they're buying a year or two down the road. And so essentially they're asking the seller to ensure that that's going to be the same. And the seller doesn't have control over the practice. So most DSOs that are well run and a good organization's trying to do things to not upset the apple yeah. cart. But there are people out there that don't do the right thing, yeah, as we right. all know. And they can upset the apple cart. And if you start to lose staff and there are too many changes made to the office and patients start to go, you may find yourself, even though you're supremely confident that, hey, revenue's never going to drop. You know, it's been increasing. People, I'm going to still be here. Everything's going to be great. Unless, of course, it's not. And, yeah. and that could have depending on the way the deal is structured, and the devil is in the detail with us, right, yeah, absolutely. Justin? Absolutely. You know, there can be a really significant penalty for failing to meet those, uh, those milestones. Yeah, and it's just a way that, uh, again, unlike a sale to a private practitioner, most, most of those deals, uh, to a certain extent, are going to be as is. There are going to be representations in an agreement that whenever you're selling to another dentist, uh, but for the most part, aside from making representations that your financials are correct, the tax returns you've provided are, are accurate, uh, that the, you've given them a list of personnel and what you pay and things like that, that you're not aware of any defects in the equipment. Aside from that, there's going to be language in your agreement that's going to say, this is being sold as is. You're welcome to come in and do your due diligence, have your advisors look at my books. But as of the closing, it's yours. I'm making no guarantee that this business is going to be successful after I leave. And in fact, right. generally, there's going to be express language in the agreement that says you're acknowledging that once I leave, there could be a decrease or that there could be a decrease if you make any change to the business. With a DSO, and I should say at least with, with a sophisticated DSO, which most are, uh, you're, you're going to see language in the agreement that's going to shift that risk back to you. So as Rob said, the most obvious example is either a holdback, which means from I've seen it anywhere from 1% to 10% of the purchase price is going to be held back so that they can ensure that there's no issues with the practice after the closing. In addition to that, there may be a specific, as Rob said, uh, revenue contingency, that if you don't hit certain numbers during the years following closing, that 
you have to pay something back. And, and, and then there's a lot of less obvious examples. So there's going to be representations. Uh, just a few days ago, I was kind of having an argument with the opposing counsel in one of these deals about representations that mm-hmm. to the seller's it actually wasn't even limited to the seller's knowledge. It was just a provision that there are no facts in this practice that could possibly cause a material adverse effect in the future. <laughs> yeah, right. And I read that and I say, how could we possibly give that representation? Because even if we're aware of something, uh, you know, we're aware of general economic conditions that, that could potentially cause an issue in this practice, how could we represent that uh, nothing bad is going to happen? And at the end of the day, despite those arguments and discussing with my, with a client, you know, they, they demanded that provision. And my client had to make a choice whether to go forward or take that. We were able to get some limitations on it. Uh, but that risk was shifted over to my client that if something goes wrong in exchange for us paying you, uh, you know, a premium on this practice, you're going to have to take that risk. And so that's that's another example of how they, they build in this this risk shifting mechanism so that the seller doesn't just get away from the practice when they sell. They're still bound to the practice, and if the practice doesn't go well, they're going to be at least on the hook to, to some extent. It's important. I mean, I'm, I'm uh, not here to toot my own horn. I don't know what that means, but I'll toot your guys' horn. Uh, <laughs> toot away, I, I think what, toot it, away. what I've learned from working with you guys, and I, I mean, I'm just I'm grateful for it because I, I wouldn't have known it, and I'm, I'm lucky to be the live client here uh, because it shows why having a dental-focused attorney prior to this happening is important because you you would be able to guide your clients. You know, one of the things when I've done some large practice sales, multiple DSOs want to purchase it. And it's not always easy to tell the client which is the best one. They have to decide for themselves anyway, like dating. But this is just a, a real advantage of having, uh, you know, advisors like you guys who who've been around the block again, don't know what that means, but still, um, you know, I like throwing in these witnesses or these catchphrases, been around the block and say, Hey, we've had some people transition with this, with DSO and here's what happens post post sale. And that might not be something that you guys are, are into because I would have wanted to ask Justin, like how many often is a practice like we'll go Paul Goodman's house of nachos and dentistry. How many DSOs are they engaging prior to an LOI? Are they usually looking at three or four or just one? Um, yeah, that that varies. I, I mean, I certainly have clients that have only looked at one, and they've signed up with them right away, and they've kind of you know bought into that to that buyer. Uh, and I'm sure you would know uh, as well as us. Some then do look at. I've had clients that have looked at you know seven or eight different. I mean, DSOs. I only say as a broker, and when I have a when I have a, a good practice listing, you know, I just know it's like who's going to knock at the door next, and there's going to be five of the representatives emailing me asking to do it within a short time frame. Uh, because they they don't miss those out there listed on broker sites or things like that. I think it depends. Like it depends on the practice. Obviously, if you're talking about a, a large multiple location practice uh, with with a lot of revenue and a lot of EBITDA, um, you really should be thinking about putting that out to bid. You yeah, know, like right. it would be foolish to only talk to one uh, to one potential buyer. Smaller practice, you know, where it's a, a single owner operator who's got, you know, a solid, you know, the, the $1.2 million yeah. grossing practice, you probably don't have the same kind of leverage and, and audience. You know, it's still, it's good to, to talk to multiple people, mm-hmm. certainly, but uh, the, uh, the large group practice is a hot, uh, a hot commodity. And, yeah. you know, so, and, you know, before we start to probably take a tar- turn for the dark side yeah. here on, on some of this stuff, I'll say, you know, we have a client that uh, that listened to our uh, our podcast, Paul, on uh, 
multiple practice ownership. And he said, you know, I was kept waiting for you to talk about the good parts, Rob. Yeah. And so I, I promise client, you know who you are. We will get, uh, we'll get a DSO guy on here to talk at some point on our show. And there are good parts. I mean, the, there can be just an enormous windfall when it comes to, uh, comes to, to selling the practice, which can be a great thing. And I think, uh, but that's, uh, has to be balanced with realistic expectations, as Justin said, uh, that, you know, there's, there's a price for that and there are certain expectations and certain things you have to be willing to, to kind of live with if you're going to start to, to deal in that, in that kind of world. Right. Absolutely. And in full disclosure, Rob and I represent some DSOs. Yeah. You know, this is this is a world that, that we live in. And, and it's just it doesn't necessarily mean that it's uh, that, that selling to a DSO is bad. You know, as we talked about, there's a lot of benefits to doing so for, for some dentists and some sellers. It, it is the best scenario for them. And we also our, our DSOs are always the nice guys. I got one for that. Course, which, right. <laughs> what's what's uh, good for the goose is good for the gander. I don't know what that means either. But no, um, um, <laughs> I'll think. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, think. Yeah, that's my. Um, but what I would say is, you know, dentists and I try to help my whether it's brokering or dentisting or just being a human, you know, try to help people dial down the drama. I mean, it's just a buyer at the end of the day. It's a, it's a buyer of your business and you have to decide what fits into you. So sometimes, you know, some on a lot of these Facebook groups, you know, they're say, you know, DSOs are out to ruin dentistry. And I mean, if DSOs, they're not a people person, but they would just laugh because they're just out to do what they want to do. It's not, you know, like a sinister, you know, um, evil villain from a, from a, a superhero movie. It's just that they're, one thing that Rob has said in one of his uh, lectures uh, we had last year was to embrace some of the things they do well. And I actually say as a, as a broker who talks to buyers, you know, they're very active in searching for practices. And, you know, I've gotten calls at my office, I mean, just out of the blue, unrelated to being Paul Goodman. I know that's hard to believe, but uh, must, we must have revenues places listed somewhere. And, they, and, they, and they're, they're sneaky. They get through my front desk. And I, I remember well, I was sitting in my office manager's office, and, like the third person had called out and like, hey, we're from XYZ DSO. We might want to buy your practice. I'm like, how many people bought, called out today? I'm like, maybe I would like to sell it today. Yeah. But it was just showing how... Uh, active slash aggressive they are in searching for these opportunities that's why i tell you know young dentists looking for practices that they have to mimic some of that behavior whether it's going to local study clubs or connecting with people because they have their eyes over this they have their uh, ears to the ground there's the last that's my last one but uh, they have their ears to the ground i don't believe that's they have their ears to the ground and I, I see that i mean that's great I, I was cold called to buy my practice i mean that was about three years ago and i was you know i was, I was actually just totally shocked um, but it just should tell our listeners and dentists how much is at stake here, I guess, with these transitions. It's a great point. I mean, that's the competition, yeah. right? If you, you're the dentist that's sulking about the fact that you can't find a practice to buy, you know, meanwhile, it's because somebody else is hustling more than you, then, you know, take a big step back. Yeah. You know, you have to you have to play that game. And as you said, Paul, it's right. I mean, they do a lot of things well and some things you may not like why they do it. But, you know, you kind of have to, you know, if. Sometimes if you can't beat them, join them. Right? It's, it's also yeah, I like, see, there we go. There, it's a whole <laughs> thing. Of, it's a whole thing of catchphrases. Uh, but I think uh, I think just to say is for them that's normal business, and to Dennis we're just so shielded from normal business, even networking, that you know they're thinking actively trying to buy Paul Goodman's practice is you know that's a good idea. Call this person up and see if they want to sell their practice. I'm probably going to say no, but Dennis would you know kind of think that's crazy. But it's just because they've never exercised those muscles before. So that's what I. Uh, have to contribute there. But you know, the thing is, though, that when you talk about that, that there is a higher pressure thing going on with them. I mean, yeah. they, that, that sort of level of aggressiveness, you know, which is what you know, I'd like to talk about for a little bit 
with Justin, you know, out of the trenches with, with some of these is that also pervades the negotiation process. That also is kind of indicative of, you know, what, what we're dealing with for the, the, the lawyers and the negotiations on the, on the other side with some of these deals. So, you know, the things that, uh, you know, and I think in our practice, we actually straddle two different worlds. You know, we, we deal with the, the absolute mom and pop as unsophisticated as they could be from a, from a legal standpoint on the other side yeah. to as sophisticated as could possibly be. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's definitely a different ball game with them. And, and, you know, some of the things that you're saying with these clawbacks and, and having to meet uh, certain milestones and the penalties and what you're actually agreeing to, it is so absolutely crucial. It's always crucial, but now it's absolutely crucial when it comes to these DSO deals is to, to fully understand what you're what you're agreeing yeah. to. Understand every detail. You can't let one word or one document go by without without paying careful attention to it because there are so many potential uh, gotchas in this. So, you know, if you can, Justin, speak to uh, speak to some of that and what your your experience has been uh, over time. Yeah, that, that that's very very accurate. Uh, I mean, I guess starting at the most basic level, when when you're dealing with a deal with a DSO, uh, and let's just say that we have two deals that are uh, that are equal in all other respects, they're both one million dollar purchase prices. The the amount of documentation that you're going to see in most DSO deals. Uh, is going to be you know seven, eight, nine, ten times the amount that you would see in, in a deal. No exaggeration. Yeah. N- no yeah. exaggeration yeah. at all. And you know there, there's going to be basic documents in the form of asset purchase agreements and employment agreements, and, and those are going to be much more detailed than you're going to see, and have many more requirements in there than you would see if you were just negotiating with a, a private practitioner. Even if you're negotiating with a, a sophisticated private practitioner who has good representation. Uh, not only that, though, but then you're going to have all of these ancillary documents. And the, the word ancillary documents to me is incredibly misleading. <laughs> yeah. Oftentimes when you're on a conversation with whether you're talking directly to a representative for a DSO or you're talking to their attorney, they're going to say, well, we've negotiated the asset purchase mm-hmm. agreement. I'm going to shoot you over some ancillary documents. And these are all standard. Uh, we don't really negotiate them. So mm-hmm. if you could yeah. just pass them along to your client to sign. And then they send you over 10 to 12 agreements that are ancillary agreements that contain additional representations, uh, contain uh, waivers of representations that the DSO has made. And so despite the fact that you may have spent uh, two weeks negotiating an asset purchase agreement every day and you've agreed to certain representations, they now have a provision in one of these ancillary documents that waives every representation that's been made by the DSO. The one thing I've said, I mean, maybe I, mean, I don't. It's, it's, it's true. You know, I, it sounds, it sounds I, nice. You know, I watched true. a lot of LA Law as a kid, so I don't know if that qualifies me, but like what I would say to you guys so you lawyers talk to each other a lot more than dentists talk to each other about what they do, right? You know, and these, you're working with a lawyer on the other side. You ever just want to say, like, come on, dude, how could you try to ask me this, right? Like, like I mean, do they just feel like, I mean, I couldn't, if I said to a dentist, I, I don't even know, make the guy's tooth blue, he'd be like, what, what are you talking about? So, like, I, 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 this is just more of a something I'm confused about. Like, I understand their goal is to get the best deal for their client, but sometimes it sounds like they ask for things that are just so outlandish that it uh, would just be, like, offensive to you as a person with a brain you know i don't know it's just is that does this stuff happen 
Oh, oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and look, I think, uh, you know, you have to push back and you have to stand your ground with, with these guys, with these groups. And I certainly will, will straight up tell them, yeah. look, come on, man, this is crazy. Uh, but at the same time, they, they know there, there's a couple things. First, I don't think they're used to being told no. And so these groups, which are throwing around a lot of money, usually when somebody sees that, that price tag on the other side, they're going to say, I don't care what's in there. Yeah. I just want to sign yeah, I it. Blind it. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're blinded blind by the money and they, they want to sign. And sometimes, look, it, it's okay to sign some of these agreements if you understand what's in there in exchange for a higher purchase price. It, it's okay to take that risk. Sometimes it makes a lot of sense to take that risk. Uh, what is more concerning to me, though, is that oftentimes when we push back on something as, as obvious as the example I just gave, and I didn't mean to get too far into the weeds yeah. with that example, but uh, we, we push back on that and they say, nobody has ever asked for yeah, that. Yeah. First of all, they're either straight up lying to me, right. uh, and I, I hope that's the case. Yeah, right. <laughs> if yeah. that's not the case, that means that most people that are selling their practices to these groups are not reading and analyzing these agreements. They don't have advisors who are making sure that they're actually looking for what they're being, what they're being bound by. Because if they were, it's not rocket science for, for an attorney to look at one of these documents and see that there's this waiver in there. It's a matter of actually reading it and understanding right. how they all apply, all the documents apply to one another. And so to, to answer your question, yeah, we, we tell them that. Uh, and sometimes they'll, they'll, play ignorant and say, oh, okay, of course we can take that out. Yeah, right. Sometimes they'll say that requires board approval and we're not going <laughs> to go to the board to get approval on this. These are our instructions. We're not going to change it. I understand what you're saying. I understand the implications, but we're not going to change it. So talk to your clients, see if your client's willing to accept it. But I think to a large extent, I mean, I, I do think that they try to obviously, you know, they, they tell you things that aren't, aren't the case, but, uh, I, I do believe that a lot of people just go along with it. I think that we find, you know, we kind of inherit this bad, pre bad precedent that, you know, nobody else has called us on this. And it's, it's you know, look, it's a challenge to, to, to deal, to do with these deals. And, you know, the way we staff work in our office, there's a reason why, you know, Justin is, is dedicated in doing this because he, he makes it his life for, you yeah. know, however long it takes to get the deal done, you know, and, there's a level of, of focus and that that's required with that. You know, I, it's uh, if you're just kind of checking in, sort of looking at this like you would in any kind of other small or medium sized firm, like you would with any other deal, you're you're in trouble. You know, because part of the the issue here is, and, and, and also, okay, these are all generalizations. It varies from deal to yeah. deal. But, you know, you could sometimes have these deals where there are five or six lawyers on the other side, right. you know, and it's kind of like playing a hockey game. You, you would never play hockey five on one. Right. You know, yeah, yeah. Like, it's just too hard. And so with them cranking out these documents, uh, you, it's hard to keep up with. And they at the same time, you know, what makes it even more challenging is their lawyers are cranking out those documents while the business people are pressuring the dentist, the seller, the client right, yeah. to say, Hey, do you want, you want your millions of dollars next week? We're ready to go. We got the money. Yeah. Is your lawyer ready? You know? Yeah. And it's like, meanwhile, you know, the stuff is flooding in. You have to, you, as Justin said, you have to review it. You have to make sure right. it's right. But the pressure is there and, and it's no, it's no accident. You know, this is set up to kind of stack the deck and it's really just a, it's a total different, totally different philosophy from what we see typically, which is, 
most dental deals that we see where you have owner operators that are that are selling yeah. to each other, you know, it's you set it up so that there aren't there doesn't necessarily need to be a winner and a loser. I mean, you know, you want to you want to have a successful transition, right? In this world, they're they are negotiating these deals and setting them up to win. It's, a, it's and like that's a, a bad like old school WWF wrestling, wrestling Hogan versus the junkyard dog. So it's like somebody has to be the loser mm-hmm. at the end. But what I want to say, uh, Rob, as a broker who's learned a lot from you guys and done some of these deals, is I, I encourage my sellers. To not to get too attached emotionally to one DSO. And the reason I tell dentists out there listening is, you know, if if you're going to sell to a private buyer, maybe you think, okay, Justin's the best dentist. He's going to take care of my patients. And then at the end, you say, I don't feel like buying this practice anymore. I can see how that's a letdown. You have to go and find another dentist. In this scenario, they're the dentist, right? So at the end of the day, it's it's just a business buying them. So, But unfortunately, dentists, we're very emotional creatures. We get very dramatic. And, you know, they, they almost will make make decisions not in their best interest instead of saying, oh, I'd rather go have this DSO. So I, my message to them is just don't become too attached to one buyer because you guys will you guys will uncover things that make them not such a great buyer anymore. And if I brought them three good choices, then they can sort of have something to fall back on. And, you know, that's, you know, I just, I just, from a dentist perspective, that's, yeah, that, that's a good point. I would say though that, you know, once you, once you start down the path, uh, and you've made it down the path. Well, this is something that that DSOs will hold against these clients. Once you get down the path, and, and it's kind of like running a, a marathon at the same speed that you would run a, a hundred meter race or something. You know, you're going full speed the whole time. It's a long process, but then towards the end, it just picks up. And yeah. you know, the the bulk of the work, despite the process itself taking you know seven to eight to nine months, is going to happen in a time span of maybe two to three weeks. And that's when everything's going to go down. And you've now committed to seven months to this practice, providing all kinds of due diligence items, planning for your future. Yeah. And you're now, they've got you committed. And there, it's, it's no, you know, it, it's, there's purpose behind this on their part, of course. Uh, but, but I guess the answer is you have to be engaged from the beginning. You know, there, there's no way we advise our clients in, in every sale that you should not sign a letter of intent without having somebody review it and analyze it. Regardless of whether it's non-binding, those terms are what the deal is going to be centered yeah. around. Yeah. And so the time mm-hmm. to, to really look at different potential buyers is, is pre-LOI That's stage. a great, great point. And that's when you should be using the LOIs against one, one another uh, and ensuring that you're getting a deal. And those LOIs need to be pretty detailed. Um, mm-hmm. Because getting, you know, if, you, if you're negotiating with, with a private practitioner, you may get to the point where you say, I didn't realize that was in the LOI. We just signed it to get the deal moving. Let's negotiate that point. And you might be able to do that. With a, a corporate buyer, they're going to say, this is the deal. This is what our board approved. We had to put the LOI before the board, and we're not going to go back on this. And so it is really important to consider different options, but you really have to do that from the outset. Once you get, you know, you, you can certainly back away. There's nothing binding you once you get to that kind of final two to three week period, but it's much harder to Yeah, back I can away. see that. Enormous investment of time and money. Yeah. You know, which is the other thing that these deals from a legal standpoint, from a legal fee standpoint, are much, 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 much more expensive, as Justin said. You know, there's just so many more documents. But the other thing that I think that people need to be aware of if they're considering doing one of these deals and selling to to one of these uh, uh, big groups, and again, all these groups are different, right? But is that, you know, you have to carve out time to be available to to meet with and speak with your your advisors and to deal with this. You can't 
go into this thinking I'm just going to continue to to practice dentistry five days a week, you know, and then I'll deal with this DSO deal, you know, after seven o'clock, yeah. you know, uh, on four nights a week, because as Justin said, this thing's going at you know warp speed, and decisions need to be made, and you need to make yourself available uh, in order to really be able to make informed decisions about whether or not certain things are going to be acceptable to you. And the only way you can do that is if you have, have a lot of time carved out. But I think too that, you know, I think people would be well, uh, well served if they realized that, Hey, you know, you have to deal with this DSO from the outset in, in a way that's going to be something that's sustainable throughout that, that however many months mm-hmm. you know, process. And then specifically the several weeks where it's a, a total fire drill and and just not be uh, not let them pressure you and, and overwhelm you and just yeah. lay down, you know, be 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 firm and say, look, you know, you may say that you're going to close this next week. I'm not ready to close next week. You know, I my my advisors are not ready to close next week. You know, to have the ability to, to put the brakes on and not be absolutely blinded by by the dollars, you know, to the point where you, you make bad decisions. It's a really good point. So we talk about building your team. That's why it's so key to have people on your team to rely on because you know, sometimes you just feel like you're on an island by yourself. You're just not going to make the best uh, decisions. I want to ask you, Justin, um, uh, I know you come to me for free nacho advice, so I'll take some free uh, legal advice or, or, or broker advice. What do they usually do with the real estate? Because I'm genuinely curious. Let's say this we're back to this Paul's House of Dentistry and Nachos. And then we have a building that is appraised at $420,000 do this DSO usually say we want nothing to do with this building keep collecting your rent or do they say we want to buy it at the time of purchase I'm I'm curious about that yeah that's a good question too and I'll give you a free attorney answer thanks. and that like is free. It, it well, depends. Free 99. <laughs> thanks yeah thanks and so what it really depends I mean a lot of DSOs look DSOs and this is to their credit a lot of dentists don't realize this they're in the business of making a profitable dental practice so they can sell it so a lot of DSOs have no interest in owning real estate. You know, they, they don't want to be a landlord and have to sell that real estate at some point. And so a lot of times they will continue to lease the space. So and I'll just say, this is something we talk about a lot in different contexts. Yeah. So I'll interject. You know, these are the people that know how to make money, right? They're not necessarily, they're not obsessed with owning the real estate, yeah, right? right? Yes, you can yeah, make yeah. money in the dental world without yeah. owning the real estate. Yeah. Go it's on. True. I'm sorry, Justin. Exactly. Uh, now, with that said, what I've started to see more often uh, recently is that oftentimes they will come along with a, uh, you know, it's an unrelated entity, an unrelated enterprise that is in the business of buying real estate to lease to, to dental practices. And they're looking for that cash flow. And so that group is not in the business of, of operating a dental practice. They're in the business of real estate holding and leasing to what they believe are very profitable and, and long-term uh, business entities. And so we do see that there are, the, the real estate piece is critically important if you own the real estate and you're selling the practice for, for a number of reasons. Uh, if you are going to lease it, oftentimes, unlike a, a situation where you are, are selling to a private practitioner or, or a group of dentists or a smaller group that's coming in and is willing to lease upon commercial terms, you know, triple net, they're willing yeah. to pay for expenses and, and they're willing to, to give you a personal guarantee and, and you're secured. You're secure. They're going to pay that rent. Uh, what we often see with corporate buyers is they come in with a completely different entity, an LLC that is created for the sole purpose of being tenants on their locations. Yeah. So that that business owns no assets 
other than leases. Okay. Uh, and so, and we'll not give you a personal guarantee, or at least we'll try very hard not to give you a, a, I shouldn't say personal guarantee, a corporate guarantee from the practice that has just bought all of your assets. And so one of the fights that we often have initially uh, on these deals is we need a corporate guarantee from your practice on this lease because my client's not going to be stuck repairing damage that you've done or, or not being able to relet this space because you have a long-term lease. And they always say, again, nobody ever requests this. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, okay, well, maybe, maybe we're a genius. Maybe, maybe not. Uh, I, I like to think that we are. Yeah, sure. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. Pat but, yourself on the back, Justin. But, uh, you know, that, that's something that you have to be aware of. And then after that, what does the lease say? You know, despite the fact that uh, we negotiate these leases all the time on both sides, uh, often on behalf of a tenant who's doing a startup or a practice acquisition, uh, and we're very aware of what's customary. Again, when you're dealing uh, with this, this group on the other side, they're going to try to give you their form of lease, which is going to be a tenant-friendly document, and yeah. it's going to provide that they're not really responsible for anything. Which is crazy. It's kind of like if, if, like you, if you had a, a bank loan, and you, like, you went into the bank, and like, <laughs> I wrote up my loan documents. <laughs> yeah, right, can yeah, can yeah. I have my money? Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I just did this at my, yeah, yeah, my yeah. own computer. I yeah, decided yeah, yeah. these, you know, <laughs> this, is a, well, this is the way this should be. Like, it, just exactly. doesn't, it doesn't work that way, except in in this sort of like alter world that, <laughs> that these guys will exist in. Exactly. And then just to add one more piece is that generally they're, they're not going to want to give you that lease or even talk about the lease until a few days before the closing. Yeah. And so they're going to give you this lease and they're going to say, here's a lease. It's standard. Uh, this is what we're willing to do. And you'll go back to them with comments and they'll say, we don't have time to negotiate this lease. We have a closing scheduled on Tuesday and we've scheduled plane flights and we're going to close on Tuesday. You say, we're not going to close on Tuesday, and they ignore you. you know, they're, they're just going to keep pushing forward and, and attempt to force you to go forward without having something in place. And again, this is a, a meaningful thing. That what you're going to do with the real estate is incredibly important. No, that's a great. That's great. The, the uh, clients asked me that. Dennis, Dennis asked me that. And I think it just adds a layer of, of complexity to it that the uh, seller needs to be aware of in this whole sort of going from owner to selling a DSO is quite the uh, you know, wild ride. Yeah, that's that's a great way to put it. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. I would just say on the on the real estate, they're also if you own the, and they're selling the real estate, you know, that kind of lets you off the hook post closing that you're no longer responsible for maintaining this relationship. But at the same time, one of the things that often comes up there is a delayed purchase of the real estate, and so you may initially agree to purchase both at the same time, and then you get close to closing, they say we're ready to go on the practice, not the real estate. And you have no solid commitment at all on the real estate. There's not even a signed agreement. And so what that, you know, at that point, you're obviously going to have to negotiate a lease. But if you do not want to be a landlord moving forward, you need to make sure that there is an obligation, an unconditional obligation to purchase that real estate in the future. And so that's something that often comes up again in terms of we have a set closing date. This issue may need to be addressed but we're not going to address it. We, we want to close anyway. It takes us back. I mean, what I said a few minutes ago, it's just you, you get the sense of how much of a rush this is at the end. And you have to, as a seller, you know, create and have open bandwidth to deal with yes, this. Totally. You know? And this is these are business people and, and lawyers that are used to their full-time job is dealing with this stuff. And you, know, you just have to temper your expectations here and and be realistic that if you're going to continue to practice throughout this process it's it's just you're not going to be able to do it at that same pace that they're trying to make you go at you know and right and you really have to you know say it again stick to your guns 
Yeah, okay. yeah, I like it. See, we're going to write off. To yeah, that. I like the and, catchphrases and 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 make this work at at a pace that that's not going to just absolutely allow yourself to be run over. I mean, one of my all time favorite client stories, and this this you know, back up for a second, the never falling in love with the deal and still keeping eyes wide open and making the right decision. That that's the DSO world. It's any deal that you do, yeah. and one of my all time favorites. You know, I had a client that we worked on a deal for. For, oh, geez, it was probably six months, and here we get to the closing, and all these people from the other side fly in. You know, it's this big deal. We're going to have this giant ceremony. And one of the things that he wanted in there at the last minute wasn't included. And he looked at me and said, is it in there? And I said, no. And he just he turned around and walked out, and they said, where did Doc go? And he said, he left. Yeah, is he coming right. back? No. Yeah, right. You know, right. And they said, why not? I'm like, well, he's not happy about that one provision. He was entirely willing to walk away. And three weeks later, guess what? We were sitting, yeah. you know, not at that same table. Nobody flew in, but we had a closing, and he got exactly what he wanted, you know. And because he was willing to to walk away, you know, it's it. But it's easy to 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 say that, you know, not to overcommit. But as you said, Justin, you know, you go through seven months and spend tens of thousands of dollars, you know, on a deal, man, and you're right there. It's really hard. Yeah, I see. Yeah, that. you get fatigued. I mean, yeah. I see it all the time in these deals. Towards the end, you know, I may be spending you know, some of these deals towards the end. I may be spending, you know, 11, 12 hours a day on this yeah. deal just to get it done. And, and during that period of time, I'm going to need to talk to the client several times. And so when the client's phone keeps ringing and, and they're working, they're treating patients and it just keeps ringing. We keep having to address new issues. And I keep coming back and saying what we proposed wasn't acceptable. You know, it gets yeah. tiresome. I can see that. And so you have to be ready for that. Your expectations certainly have to be uh, put in line with what this process is. Um, and then at the same time, you have to know how to prioritize what what you should push back on and what you shouldn't. Because there, there are going to be a ton of issues in, in the deal. There are going to be things where I'm going to tell a client, look, I don't like it, but I've seen it in every single DSO deal I've ever done. There's no way they're going to back off on it. Are you willing to live with this? And usually you, you can be willing to live with I mean, with that's so fantastic. Like that. That's my whole thing theme of life is managing people's expectations. So when they have people like you on their side who do this, you manage them well. We say, oh, that's normal. And that's what everybody's thinking in life is like, is this thing normal or not normal? And that's just such a, a great asset for them to have people like you to, to share that with them because uh, these are the first time in their life they're hearing it. And also it's kind of our theme that, you know, Rob and I talk about, like don't mess up on your once thing. And this is right. the once time they're mm -hmm. going to do it. You know, the, the, the only time. The, I know once I'll time. Top is, it. Yeah. This is not even the once. This is the last. Yeah, last. You know? Even better. Yeah, wow. even yeah, scarier, yeah. Wow. right? Yeah, that's uh, so uh, um, I agree. Thanks, Justin. Yeah, this was awesome, man. Thanks for uh, thanks for being on the other side of the wall today. Yeah, thanks for having <laughs> me. Good having it's you, Amigo. Great. And uh, anybody that wants to uh, contact Justin, you can uh, reach him through our website, uh, yourdentallawyer.com. And his email address is justin at rmontgomery-law.com. And as always, that stuff will be up on the show notes. Thanks, Great. Justin. I'll see you tomorrow in person. Thanks, guys. <laughs> Thanks for listening to another great podcast with The Dental Amigos. And don't forget to tune in next time to have the dental business demystified. If you're looking for more information about today's podcast, you can find it on thedentalamigos.com. If you're looking for Paul, you can find Paul at drpaulgoodman.com. And if you're looking for Rob, you can find him at yourdentallawyer.com. This podcast has been sponsored by Orange Line Media Group, helping dentists and other professionals create content people love. Find out how we can help you take your business to the next level at www.yourdentallawyer.com.
orangelinemg.com. Till next time.